There is one scripture above all others that sparked the Protestant Reformation and many, many revivals. The just shall live by faith. This statement brought Martin Luther out of mere religion into the joy of salvation by grace. The Reformation, as well as the Wesleyan revival, were both the fruit of the book of Romans, this wonderful letter written by Paul from Corinth about the year 56 AD. And the same Holy Spirit who taught Martin Luther and John Wesley can teach us. You and I can experience revival in our hearts, in our homes, and in our church if the message of this letter grips us in the same way that it gripped the men and women of faith from centuries past. So we're going to take a road trip through the book of Romans in a series called Foundations, because the book of Romans lays out the foundations of what we believe, why we believe it, and how we live because of the things we believe. And in the opening verses of this letter, Paul introduces himself to the believers in in Rome, and he links himself to his readers by calling attention to his commitment to his calling, to the people, and to the gospel. So our title this morning is The Power of God to Salvation, which is exactly what the gospel is. And we begin by first noting, or as Paul demonstrates for us, that he is called by God called by God. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." So Paul is writing to people he's never met, and and they live in a place he's never been. So he introduces himself first as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, meaning a slave. And in the Roman Empire, half of the population were slaves, about 60 million slaves at that time. So his readers in Rome, they understood what he meant to be a bondservant. Now, Paul was also talking about the Hebrew concept of how someone living in Israel, if they fell on hard times, they could actually choose to become a slave to someone else in Israel for six years, and then in the seventh year, they would be freed. So it was a way to survive if the bottom fell out in your life. But in Exodus 21, it talks about how if at the end of those six years, when you obtained your freedom, If you loved your master and you wanted to remain in that servant-master relationship, that you could choose to do that. They would then take you and they would actually pierce your ear as a symbol of that decision and that commitment. And Paul was a man who chose to serve Jesus Christ in that way, as a bondservant. In his heart, he chose to be Jesus' slave because he wanted to follow and obey and stay close to his master. The next thing he says is that he is called to be an apostle. The idea of being an apostle is that you are sent out as a special ambassador or messenger. And Paul's message is the gospel of God, it says. This isn't the gospel of Paul. He is simply a messenger of God's 
gospel. And in the technical sense, an apostle was one who had seen and been sent by Jesus after he rose from the dead. And in the book of Acts, Jesus appeared to Paul when he was on his way to the city of Damascus. And at that time, Jesus commissioned Paul and made him an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul started churches all throughout the Roman Empire, and over 20 years and three missionary journeys, he started churches, and he then began writing letters that became Bible books. In fact, half of the books of the New Testament were written by Paul. And the next thing he says about himself in verse 1 is that he is separated to the gospel of God. Now, the Greek word translated the gospel simply means good news. He was separated to the good news of God. In fact, where Paul's other New Testament letters focus more on the church and addressing specific challenges and problems, the letter to the Romans focuses on God and his great plan of redemption and salvation. It's all about God and the good news. And one of the things I love about this, where it says that he was separated to the gospel of God, his emphasis is on what he was separated to, not what he was separated from. A lot of times, Christians can get so focused on what they are separated from that they measure their spirituality by the things that they don't do and the things that they don't say and the places that they don't go instead of what they do and the things that they do say and where they do go. Now, if you were to ask Paul, hey, aren't there some things that you are separated from, that you've separated yourself from? And Undoubtedly, he would say, yes, there are, of course. But his focus wasn't on that as much as it was on what he was separated to. And I believe it's an immature stage of faith when we measure ourselves by what we're against. And it's a sign of maturity when, we focus, when our focus becomes on what, not what we're against, but what we're for. That we're for Jesus. We're for the things of the kingdom. And that was certainly true about Paul. Well, continuing on in verse 2, he says this gospel... This good news of God was promised before through his prophets. Paul goes out of his way to make sure they understood that it was promised before. In fact, thousands of years before. The first promise that we have of a Savior is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it speaks of the seed that would come. So this, this news, this good news, this gospel about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. It's all, all of the Old Testament pointing forward, looking toward the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And this is what it tells us there in verse 3. It says, we will, and we're going to learn this all throughout the study of Romans, that it's all about Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. And there are a couple of things that stand out about Jesus. First, we see his humanity. Notice that phrase in verse 3, the seed of David. That refers to his humanity. The evidence of his humanity is his human birth, and Jesus had to be man in order to die. So there's his humanity. We also see his deity. Notice that phrase, son of God, in verse 4. While he had to be a man to die, he had to be God to die for us, for it to mean anything. And the evidence of his deity is his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus was God, and he was man, 
not half and half, but 100%, all human and all divine at the same time. But that phrase, all the way back in verse 1, the gospel of God, that is being amplified in the following verses. It is the gospel of God, the good news of God. You know, when we think about this message, and not just Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and all that that makes possible, but the message of the whole Bible You think about the Bible as a collection of 66 books written by over 40 human authors over a period of 1,500 years, writing on three different continents in three different languages. You take all of that together, and we call that, or call what we have in our hands, the, the God's Word. This is the Bible, the Scripture. This is God's Word. Now, how do we know that this is God's message and not just a human message? One of the ways that we know is fulfilled prophecy. You see the reference there in verse 2 to these ancient Hebrew prophets whose predictive prophecies are recorded in what it calls there the Holy Scriptures. And there's actually a couple of, of examples right here in these opening verses. Look again at that phrase, the seed of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised that the Savior would be a descendant of David. How do we know that Jesus was a descendant of David? Matthew chapter 1 gives us Jesus' genealogy through his stepfather, Joseph. I say stepfather because uh, Jesus didn't have a human father, uh, but that was his stepfather in that sense. So that's Matthew chapter 1. But in in Luke's gospel, we have Jesus' genealogy through his mother, Mary. And when you look at both genealogies, both of them together, you see that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Another example of of fulfilled prophecy is found in that phrase, Son of God. It gives as evidence for Jesus' deity, his resurrection from the dead. It was prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Now, how do we know that he did? Because we have an empty tomb because we have the documentation of these appearances of Jesus after he had died on the cross and resurrected, and because of the transformed lives of his followers. People who went from hiding in fear for their lives to boldly proclaiming the message about Jesus' resurrection. They were changed. All but one of the original followers gave their life as a martyr as a result of that testimony. And so Jesus, in his lifetime, fulfilled not just a few prophecies, but a few hundred. And the fact that the Bible contains predictive prophecy distinguishes itself from other sacred texts. So we can read these prophecies and have the advantage of being able to look back and see how they were fulfilled. So it's like history in advance that we get to read in the scriptures, in God's word. Continuing on, look at verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. For Paul, the opportunity to serve as an apostle was all about grace. It was all of grace. And when the Bible talks about grace, it means the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. 
Paul didn't have the sense that God made him an apostle, uh, an apostle because he was just so intelligent or just super spiritual above everybody else. He knew that it was all of grace. And he saw his ministry as a privilege and an honor to be able to serve the Lord in this way. And it is for us as well. You know, when you, you come here, you, you attend on a, on a Sunday, and maybe you move past attending to where you're starting to connect outside of a Sunday morning. You're connecting in a small group. And then after that, you step in a little further where you're actually you're serving in a ministry. You're stepping in and helping in some way, serving the, the body. And, and you begin to serve with that sense that it's by God's grace that I get to serve the Lord. We get to use our gifts and our abilities in, by what he's given us to serve one another and to serve the Lord. It's an honor and a privilege. And by God's grace, the gospel has reached the Roman Christians that he's writing to, demonstrating that they were the called of Jesus Christ. So he acknowledges not only is he called of God, they are called of God, and likewise, so are we. That we too are the called of Jesus Christ. We are called by God. The second thing that Paul notes here is his commitment to the people. He is committed to the people. We see that beginning in verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there for now. The book of Romans is different from other epistles because most of Paul's letters were to churches that he founded. Paul did not start the Roman church. In fact, he had not yet been to Rome, and there's no biblical or historical evidence that Peter started this church in Rome. It seems that this church began as Christians began to go, to move to this great city of the Roman Empire and settle there, and that's how this church was started. Even so, through mutual acquaintances or through his travels, Paul knew many of the the people in the church in Rome, because he names them, he mentions them by name at the end of the book in chapter 16. And even if Paul only knew many of them by acquaintance, he knew two things about them. And these are two things that are true of every Christian. He knew that they were beloved by God and that they were saints. Essentially, he's saying that he knew God loves you and God has a plan for your life. You are loved by God, and you are set apart for God, for some purpose, for his purpose. Now, it's always exciting to be reminded that God loves us, right? We can't hear that too much. For someone to come and say, hey, God loves you, that just thank you for that reminder. Uh, to know I'm loved by God. And, and not only does he love us collectively, he loves us individually, each one of us. But you may find it surprising when it says that God called them saints. Paul says that all of these Christians in Rome were all saints. All of them, not just a few of them, not just the elite, not just the elite of the elite. You know, in some faith traditions, saints are the super elite group of Christ followers. They're the most amazing men and women who have ever lived. And the church decides who qualifies as being a saint and canonizes them and makes them a saint. But the Bible says that every follower of Christ is a saint. 
Now, that may hit you if you think about your name, St. Saint Michael, St. Saint Austin, whatever it might be. You know, put, put saint in front of your name. It sounds kind of weird. And don't go too far with that. You know, don't make a little statue of yourself and put it on your dashboard of your car. But the word saint means set apart, to be set apart. And the idea is that whenever you and I trusted Jesus to forgive us and to lead us, when we received that spiritual life from him, God sainted us. He canonized us us. He set us apart. He took us and he separated us from the world, from the old life, but more importantly, to himself and to this life in Christ that he has for us. In that sense, we are set apart. Do you have something that you have set apart for specific use? Maybe if you're a musician, you have that special musical instrument that's set apart. I only use that for this. Or maybe it's a tool that you use, but that's only for specific situations. Well, that's what God does with us. We are set apart for his use, for the master's use. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He noted, they were not called because they were saints, but they became saints through that calling. That's how we become saints. Now, and of course, you see the conventional Greek and Hebrew greeting of grace and peace there at the end of that verse. And then in verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul was thankful for them as people, so he expresses his gratitude. And notice what he was also thankful for or because of their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, when he says the whole world, he's referring to the Roman Empire, which in that day, that was everything. They were the, the empire, the, the ruling empire of the world at that time. Paul was thankful for the good reputation of the church in Rome. And because of its location, this church had greater visibility and greater opportunity to glorify Jesus throughout the Roman Empire and to influence the world with the gospel. They were at the crossroads of so many things going on. So they were, they were spoken of highly. And as Paul traveled, he frequently found people talking about this church in Rome. He's hearing about all the things that God is doing. And that's something for us to consider. Do I have a reputation in the community that gives God a good name? Do I have a, a good reputation at my workplace or in my neighborhood that gives God a good name? God wants us to give him a good name on some level. That's what the third commandment was all about when it says not to take the, the Lord's name in vain. One of the ways that we keep that commandment is by living in such a way that we give God a good name, that we represent him well. Well, not only was he thankful for them, Paul also prayed for them. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. You know, we say things all the time like, hey, praying for you. Or we'll sign a greeting card and say, you're my thoughts and my prayers. 
Are they? Do we? Do we really when, when we say that? Or is it only just the two seconds it took to, to sign that card that, that it crossed your mind? Are we really thinking about them? Are we really praying for them before that or any time after that? It's easy to say that you're praying for someone. But Paul, he wants them to know he's really praying. That's what he's saying. I'm really praying for you. In fact, he describes his prayer life for them as being without ceasing. And you, are, you and I, we're commanded to do the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. There's a good memory verse. There's only three words there. Pray without ceasing. Now, how does that work? You know, there's those times where we're going to connect with God through prayer, where we spend a, just a block of time where we're just going to pour out our heart to the Lord. We just set that time apart where we're going to pray. But we can also offer up those short prayers all throughout the day. You know, when you're in your shower, Lord, I just commit this day to you. When you're on your way to work, God, I commit this work day to you, and I just pray for my family that you be with them today. And you, you pray, Lord, do a work in their lives. Or you're at work, and you're about to make that sales call, and you pray, pray Lord, give me favor with this person that, that I, I might have a buyer right now. Give me favor in my workplace, whatever it is that you're doing. And as you're driving home, thank you, Lord, for the day. Lord, would you prepare my heart to, to minister to my family, to have a good time, a sweet time with my family tonight, whatever it might be, those short prayers. So you have this ongoing conversation with God. You're, you're talking to him in these short messages throughout the day, all day, every day. And it changes our life when we do that, when we, when we begin to do that, because now God is not just a part of your life. He's in every aspect. We're actually living life with God, experiencing every part of our day with the Lord, aware of his presence and, and his nearness. So that's key, to pray without ceasing. But notice what he was praying for. He was praying that he would have the opportunity to visit them in Rome. There in verse 10, he says, Making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, a lot of times, even when we're praying, it's like, let's be honest, we want what we want. Right? We, we, and when we pray, a lot of times that happens. Here's what I really want, Lord. We want what we want. But Paul wanted what he wanted only if it was God's will. He understood that no matter how much you and I think we want something, no matter how much we think we have to have something, if it's not God's will for us, then we really don't want it. We, we think we do, but we really don't. And there are times where, even though we know something isn't God's will for us, that we're just so bent on having it. We're so bent on getting it or, or doing it that we try to justify it. We justify our, our choices. We'll even insist, I have to have this to be happy because right now I'm miserable, but this, this is going to make, make me happy, Lord. Now, I can tell you <laughs> that every one of us who ever tested this theory has found that a follower of Christ cannot have any kind of sustained happiness outside the will of God. 
And we've all tried that, right, at one point or another, and it doesn't work. And that's something we need to keep in mind the next time we're tempted to veer off track and get off of God's path for us. Now, Paul would, in fact, he will make it to Rome eventually as a prisoner. And only after being shipwrecked and snake bit. I don't know what he had in mind when he was praying this, but Lord, by some means, get me to Rome. I don't think he had that in mind. I don't know if he would have been praying the same way if he knew what was ahead of him. You know, one of the things that this speaks to is how uh, getting to where we believe God wants us to go doesn't usually look anything like we think it will. And I know many people who have felt like they knew God's will for them, and they started out in that direction, and then when it got difficult, they immediately questioned whether or not it was really God's will. And I'll include myself in, in that as well. I've been there. You start to question. We think that if things are going well, then it must be in the will of God. And if things are not going well, then I must be out of the will of God. A lot of times, it's actually the opposite. Where when things are going well, we might be out of God's will. Or if things are not going well, we're actually in God's will. We have to go beyond simply evaluating what's going on in our life based on our circumstances. We have to understand what God is saying to us and, and the way he's leading us to persevere in the direction that he told us to go, no matter what the external circumstances might be. Continuing on, verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Paul longs to not only visit them and to give to them, but also to receive from them as well. Verse 13, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, Paul speaks about his desire to see fruit in their lives, that there would be growth. What kind of growth? I think there are at least two kinds of growth that he's speaking of. One, Paul wanted to see each of them grow spiritually, each uh, each person individually. He truly cared about their individual spiritual growth. I think he also wanted to see the church in Rome grow numerically because that's what healthy things do. They grow. If, you're, if your child, say if you have a child and they're like half grown and they just stop growing, that, that's not good. Something's off. Something's wrong. Something healthy should continue to grow and develop, and that's also true of churches. And that means each individual in the church is growing. It starts there with each individual growing. And part of that growth includes sharing your faith with other people who need the Lord and seeing others come to faith and seeing other people set out on their spiritual journey of growth and starting to learn and grow and change. 
Paul wanted to see them, and he wants to see us grow spiritually, but he also wants, us, wants to see us reach out to our community and grow numerically as well. That's part of spiritual growth. In fact, in the Brazos Valley, we need every Christian in every church to do everything they can to reach our community. That's part of growth. And that's what, what Paul is praying here. Now notice, he talks about these people to whom he's indebted to. Greeks, and he calls them barbarians, which is basically a non-Greek. And to wise and to unwise. That is, those uh, who did and those who did not embrace Greek or Hellenistic culture. So, he's, he's, in a way, he's saying everybody. But in what sense is Paul a debtor? I think we could think of it in terms of when we are obligated to say something to someone. There are times in life where we are obligated to say something. You know, when you're a friend or a family member, you know, their pants are unzipped. They come out of the bathroom, the pants are unzipped. You know, hey, you know, go, go take care of that. Or you're at, you're at dinner or something and, and somebody's got some food on their face. You know, you're obligated to say something. If you didn't know that, you know that now. You're obligated to tell somebody, hey, you've got some food on your face. You know, go take care of that. Or how about a more serious situation? Uh, pull up next to a car and you notice there's, there's, there's steam coming out from their hood and there's a fire. You should tell them, hey, your car's on fire. There are times where we have an obligation to say something. And if God has radically transformed your life and you see people around you who need the Lord, they need the Lord in their life, there's an obligation to say something. And in that sense, Paul felt he owed the whole world. He felt as if he owed it to the people around him to say something. And maybe for you and I, we could begin to have that same sense of urgency, that same sense of obligation. Paul was at least 20 years into his ministry at this point, and he still felt like he was a debtor. He was such a tireless evangelist working all over, over the world because he believed he had a debt to pay and he owed it to the whole world. And he would not be free from that until he had told as many people as possible the good news of salvation in Christ. Why? Because he was committed to the people. He was committed to the people. So he, he knew that he was called by God. He knew that he was, and he demonstrated that he was committed to the people. And finally, all of this is because he was convinced of the gospel. That's our third point. Convinced of the gospel. After his introduction, Paul now delivers his thesis statement for this entire letter to the Romans. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Why is Paul making such a bold affirmation? Is it because that he was in some way tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Understand, the gospel was identified with a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no appreciation for the Jewish people. 
And crucifixion was the lowest form of execution given to a criminal. So their thought, their mentality was, why put my faith in a Jew who was crucified? Everything about the gospel went against the grain of Roman pride and dignity. So the thought of Paul, this little Jewish tent maker, going to Rome and preaching the gospel was kind of laughable to the Roman people. Have you ever felt ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Have you ever felt ashamed or embarrassed of the good news about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection? I think we all have at one point or another, if we're being honest. I think we've all been in positions where we could have said something or we should have said something, but we chose not to. And I think we do that sometimes because we're, we're nervous or we're afraid because we don't know how they're going to respond. We don't know if they're going to not only reject the message that we're going to give them, but they're going to reject us as well. Now, why, for Paul, why might Paul have been ashamed? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he talks about sharing this message and how how it was a stumbling block to Jewish people, and it was foolishness, uh, foolishness to Greek people. To religious people, the idea is that you can't be religi- religious enough to go to heaven because it's not religious people who go to heaven, but it's forgiven people. That is offensive to them. That, that's offensive. It trips them up. And Paul knew that. So perhaps, there, or he was perhaps hesitant to share this message with religious people. And then on the other hand, when you take someone who is an intellectual, and a lot of times the whole idea of God taking our place and dying for our sins and the whole thing, it sounds stupid to an intellectual person. To them, that doesn't even make sense. Paul could have potentially, he could have been potentially embarrassed to share the message with a well-educated intellectual person who was going to just make him feel really stupid. Maybe, we, maybe we've been there as well. But Paul realized that so many times, you just get one opportunity. So you have to be in that place where we are going to surrender ourselves in serving God and take advantage of those one-time opportunities that we might have. We don't know. And even when it comes to those one-time opportunities to connect with someone and to share with someone and to say something to someone and how we're going to do our best with the power and the strength and the courage that God gives us, Paul was not ashamed. And he declares that. He says it. Now, why not? Because in verse 16, he says this message, it is the power of God to salvation. The word translated power is where we get our English word dynamite, dynamic, or dynamo. And Paul is saying that this message... This good news about Jesus is explosively powerful. We love power, don't we? And I'm not just talking about power tools or cars with a lot of horsepower. I think we can all uh, relate. We like, we like power to our house, don't we? You don't know what you, you, you're missing until it's gone. <laughs> we, we like power. We, we like to have that. And um, the gospel, 
the good news of Jesus Christ, has inherent, inherent power. It doesn't just bring power, it is power. And it's God's power at that. Rome thought they knew all about power. It was always said that Greece might have its philosophy, but Rome has its power. Well, despite their power, the Romans, and like everyone else, were powerless to make themselves righteous before God. And Paul realized that this message had changed his life, and it changed the lives of people all over the Roman Empire. And he was confident that it could change the lives of people throughout the city of Rome as well. He was confident about that. But notice, it's the power of God specifically to salvation there in verse 16. The word salvation is one of those words that makes some people kind of bristle because they don't like the implication that they need to be saved, which is exactly what the word, what it does. There's this implication that I need to be saved. Are you saying I need to be saved? Well, yes. Are you saying then that I'm a sinner? Well, yes. Well, you know, I'm not as bad as that other person. I'm not as bad as the other people I work with. Well, congratulations. But are you as good as Jesus Christ? Yeah, no. Well, then you're a sinner like me (laughs) in that case. You're a sinner like all of us. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. We're going to discover that uh, here in the book of Romans. But notice, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Not for everyone who behaves, everyone who believes. Now make no mistake, when we place our faith in Christ and trust him to forgive us and to lead us, our behavior will change. And it will continue to change all the way up until we go to be with the Lord. But we behave not to be saved, but because we are saved. That's when the behavior changes. That's when our lives are transformed. Religion says behave. Jesus says believe. And don't miss the first part. It's for everyone who believes. Not just for some people. Not just for some who believe. Anyone can believe this message. It's for the people from every walk of life. Now, he does say for the Jew first and also for the Greek, which is a non-Jew. This means that the gospel was meant to go first uh, to both the ethnic and cultural Jew and then to the cultural Greek. But now there are no barriers. There are no racial barriers, no social barriers, and no gender barriers. It's for your parents. It's for your kids. It's for your spouse. It's for your boss, your coworkers, your employees. It's for your friends, your classmates, your neighbors. And guess what? It's even for your enemies. It's for everyone who believes. And finally, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And this revelation of God's righteousness comes to those with faith. It's fulfilling the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, which is where this phrase comes from. The just, that is, the justified ones, shall live by faith. And that verse from Habakkuk 2, 4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. This faith 
in Jesus Christ becomes the basis of life for those who are justified or declared righteous. The just shall live by faith. They're not only saved by faith, they live by faith. You and I live, are to live by faith. Some have said that verse 16 gives us the theme of Romans, but verse 17 gives us the text. The whole book of Romans is Paul's commentary on this text. So obviously we're going to learn a lot more about verses 16 and 17 because every study in this series will be a development of these two verses. But I love how that verse begins, speaking about righteousness or rightness or being right with God. The book of Romans tells us how to have a right relationship with God, and Paul says it is from faith to faith. The idea is that this relationship with God is about faith from beginning to end. The just shall live by faith. May our identity in Christ come from a place of knowing that we are the called of God. We are called of God and that our lives reveal this commitment to people, the people around us, because we ourselves are convinced of the gospel. That we have been convinced and changed by the power of of the gospel. And maybe you came to today or maybe you're watching online. It could be that some of you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never acknowledged to him that you have sinned, confessing that you have done things that you should should not have done or you're not done things that you should have done and you recognize that there's this distance between you and God that there's this gap, this vast gulf between you and the Lord. But trusting in Jesus to forgive you, trusting him to lead you in your life, and to receive from God this spiritual life that we've been talking about as we close in prayer, I want to give you that opportunity this morning to open your heart and to receive him into your life. If you would, let's all bow our heads together.